Okay, here it is, an episode a lot of people have been waiting for, and certainly one I was really excited to get to record. Swain is a mentor to some of the best cyclists in the world right now. Uh, he's, a, he's been the biggest, most influential mentor to myself outside of, you know, maybe my mom. But uh, And so I'm really lucky that he's been such an, he's had such an impact in my life, but also like the very best cyclists in the world continue to look up to the guy. Uh, you know, there was a recent video interview with Annemiek Van Bluten, the the strongest female cyclist in the world right now on the road. And she explained how honored she was to get to spend some time with him and get to learn from him a little bit before he kind of retreated back into the woods, retiring from pro cycling last year. Uh, Swain and I get into a whole bunch of different stories here. There's so many stories on the guy. And if you Google his name, you'll find podcasts and interviews with just stories that are beyond belief. And what you realize when you get to know him closer is the stories that you can Google as wild as they are that make him sound like the Chuck Norris of cycling. Those are really the kid-friendly ghost stories that get told when all the kids are roasting marshmallows. But then when the kids go to sleep, and uh, that's when the real ghost stories come out. Then you hear more of it. <laughs> the, it the, you just keep hearing more and more of just unbelievable stories. So I wanted to keep this podcast to telling only stuff that has not been covered before. So if you've read in any of that stuff or heard any podcasts with Swain in the past, I promise this is all stuff you will have not have heard there before. Uh, and there's so much to go over with Swain, and I'm sure we could do another 10 episodes but uh, I even there were some questions at the end that I wanted to that I forgot to ask him, and so I ended up sending him another voice file after doing all this, just asking him two other questions on some of the wild theories and ideas I have, and uh, just to get his opinion on it. It's usually what happens for the last couple of years. I'll send him these voice files, asking him these crazy questions, and I'm sure sometimes he's thinking, "Oh, what is he on to now?" But uh, he always answers them, so make sure. You listen to those last files at the end of this episode. Uh, there's there's another thing I wish I would have gotten into with him, just because it's interesting, because it's so outside of the world of pro cycling. Is archery is something I just realized that we're both into. I'm I've been in uh, archery since I was a little kid, and I love shooting bows. And uh, I've been doing it way longer than I've been cycling. That's for sure. And um, but I didn't know that Swain was into that as well until fairly recently. So I wish I would have asked him about that. But again, we ran out of time and maybe that'll be for another episode. Uh, Swain and I, again, we have all these different crazy theories. You know, I have ones where like, I, I don't think sunscreen is good for you, for example. And so we'll, we'll be going off on all these different tangents about, you know, what we should be doing and what's not natural and what's the healthiest way. And should we really be doing X, Y, and Z and crushing so much refined sugar on the bike and all these, these other things we'll just go back and forth on. So again, there's some of those questions that I asked him at the end of this. And uh, he's just such an insightful guy to listen to. The other thing I wanted to uh, make a point of with this is, you know, Swain is given so much for so many guys, you know, myself, him mentoring me has been one thing, but the amount he's given back to the sport and young and upcoming riders. And I really believe he's done more than probably any other cycling club or organization in Canada to help young and upcoming riders come. I mean, not just giving his time, but literally his own hard-earned money, his equipment, everything like that is unbelievable. And he's never asked for anything in return or any recognition for it. And I think that's 
incredibly admirable, but I wish he'd get more credit for just how much he's done and how much he's given back. So uh, I, I really hope you enjoy this episode. And another thing, uh, one of his old teammates, Mitch Docker, I'm sure any of the cyclists listening to this have heard the cycling podcast before, and you've probably heard the recent episode that came out about that Mitch Docker put together about the 2014 Giro d'Italia. And the thing is with Swain is his stories off the bike are so wild and unbelievable that they overshadow what a legend he was on the bike and just how freakishly strong this guy is. And when they get into this story about that Giro and specifically they uh, get into the team time trial and you hear what he did in that. And then when Swain actually starts giving you the stats and the numbers from that, it is mind blowing. These like you're, I remember listening to that that podcast I've listened to probably two or three times now on the bike, and just my jaw was hitting the floor when I heard uh, the stats that he was telling. And so I'm not going to tell you what they are in this podcast. You got to go listen to Mitch's podcast to listen to that. And then even before that, uh, his life in the Peloton podcast, he did another episode with Swaino called uh, Swaino's Journey. And so those are two episodes I'd highly recommend you go listen to if you enjoy this show. I think that's about it. Uh, other than that, I'll let you enjoy Swain Tuft. All right. Hey, buddy. I'm glad I finally got the, uh, the legendary, the legend himself on for a podcast. This is exciting for me. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we, uh, we definitely talk enough in between these things. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, well, we've been chatting for a long time. I mean, I guess it was, it would be about five years ago now that I got an email from you. And I mean, I didn't, I thought it was a joke at first. I didn't think it because I knew who you were and you were a, a idol of mine at the time, but I had never spoken to you and seeing that pop up in my email, I just thought, you know, I didn't know Mike Creed at the time, but that would have been like a prank that he would have played on me <laughs> or something. So, sure. yeah. But uh, man, so where are you right now? You're in Andorra. Yep. And, yeah, in Andorra. And totally locked down. Yeah, we got uh, two borders, and they're they're shut down. So yeah, you you can't uh, now things are starting to ease up in the country, but um, yeah, you can't like you couldn't uh, unless you have some kind of a reason you can't leave those those borders. Yeah. And so the cyclists, uh, the ongoing joke right now is the fact they only have like the one road to ride on. They have to drive to all this stuff. What about you? Like, are you allowed to go mountain biking or hiking or anything like that? Or could you just, you know, up, go do up it until and... today it was, uh, they were pretty, uh, strict about, um, like you said, the pros were allowed to train on one road and everyone else has just been on quarantine, you know, but, uh, I have to say we live up here on the mountain and it's uh it's a bit different. Sure. Okay. <laughs> it's not the big population of, of La Vea, so yeah, okay. it's a different different life. Let's just play that way. Okay. And so I mean, man, you're described by many in the cycling world as a legend, the Chuck Norris of the cycling world. And in this podcast there's been so many articles and podcasts and stuff done on you. And I'm going to try not to touch on any of that content that's been done in the past because there's just so much more to be discovered about the original bike packer and mountain man. And uh, I mean, you're someone who started down an extremely unconventional life path and didn't seem to have much aim or direction for exactly where he wanted to go at a young age. But now you have even the, you know, 
the best pros in the world. You have the best female rider in the world. Annemiek Van Vluten has said, you know, you're a legend to her and it was great for her to talk to you and get to get some insight from you and the best riders in the world tour. You're a mentor to them as well. And then we have, you know, the Bridge the Gap program back in Canada, which gives mentors to Canadians. And there's guys like Mike Woods on there, Catherine Pendrel, like some of the best cyclists and athletes Canada's ever produced. And it says, you know, whatever their credentials are, their best results. And, you know, you've worn the pink jersey at the Giro and been on the podium at the World Championships. And next to your name, all it says is legend. And I think that's hilarious. And it's like completely earned. But uh, I just think that's, that's super cool that you've been able to do that. But again, so I don't want to touch on the stuff that's uh, been written about or talked about in the press before about you, but instead just some questions I have after reading all that. So in your early life, I mean, I know you were not attending high school a lot to go climb mountains and stuff like that. So walk me through that exactly. Did, did you finish high school or did you drop out of high school to go start living on top of that mountain the one winter or what was that early life like? Uh, yeah, I mean, Look, high school is a pretty weird time for, for most of us. Um, if you're in the cool gang, uh, I, I think sometimes it can be all right. But even then, it's still weird. It's just a weird part of being a human. You're developing in all these different ways. Yeah. Uh, I just, I really didn't fit in. And uh, I don't know, like I had my, I could have, if I tried, I guess, I could try maybe made a better effort, but I just, I didn't. I just didn't feel like uh, that was my thing. And I looked at like what a lot of my peers were doing there. It was just a lot about drinking, getting wasted and, and uh, you know, just playing that crazy social game. And I, you know, I grew up out in the middle of nowhere and I loved just doing things on my own. And, uh, and around that time, kind of coming into like, uh, well, when I came into high school, grade eight, grade nine, I made some really cool friends in a couple guys named Evan and Ivan and Evan was really into climbing and he taught both Ivan and myself um, how to climb and all the, you know, all the technical stuff. He was a very technical minor guy. And, and that just took my fascination away because I'd grown up like going in the mountains with my dad and, and hiking and skiing and all that stuff. But climbing was like a whole other element to get really far out there. And it just, yeah, it took my mind and it, it, uh, I would just daydream in, in school. You know, I remember being in like social studies class and just reading Reinhold Messner books and uh, just not giving a shit about school one, one bit. I just felt like it was a jail. And, you know, at the time I was skateboarding because um, that was kind of like the only group I felt like I had some sort of skateboarding, snowboarding. It was, you know, there was <laughs> a mountain element to it. And those were the kind of people I, I resonated most with. But uh, by the time grade 10 rolled around, I'd already, well, you know, you're from Squamish, you know, the, the smoke bluffs out back. We basically spent all summer uh, climbing there, just just kind of bumming around Squamish way before it was what it is now. Really? Uh, yeah, it was, just, uh, it was just a little McDonald's and uh, grocery store back in those days. But um yeah, it's crazy to go there now and just see, like, the highway and everything, you know, because this would have been, uh, I had a shitty old 1982 Subaru four-wheel drive station wagon, and we would take that. We are basically living out of that, 
and we'd go up, uh, basically save up money and go up the Squamish Highway. And uh, yeah, we'd camp out on the bluff. I mean, that was, I'm sure you can't do that nowadays. Oh, they still do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm 43 now, so that was, geez, 16, 17. Yeah, so that's uh, 26 years back. <laughs> okay, so that was high school time for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, we'd done a bunch of trips at this point. And like I said, I was just, just fascinated with, with traveling in the mountains and getting out there and school was no longer my, my thing at all. And I remember showing up in grade 10 and I was just barefoot. Like we've been basically living like hippies all, all summer. So I just kind of kept rocking that. And I was just, you know, I'm walking in and I'm like, what the hell am I doing here? This is the worst. And I, I really like, as a kid, you don't know, like you're, that's just what you're supposed to do. And there's not really any other options, you know? And, uh, I'm just looking around and everyone's got like their fancy new clothes on. And I just felt like such a weird place to, to be. And I, I just, at that point, it just hit me hard. I'd always wondered why the, why the hell we have to go through this jail system. But, um, at that point it just it hit me hard and then i just had a really hard time consistently going to class which it just gets worse and worse as you start <clears throat> cutting uh class more and more it just becomes this this horrible cycle where you just go to school way less and before you know it you're you're pretty much out of out of school and and uh you know i had jobs and i was i was doing trips so you know i was lucky i wasn't like wasn't like I was into the hard drugs and just getting wasted all the time. I was doing cool stuff and, and, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, change that for anything. I mean, I, in those years, I learned so much about so many different things. It was a very important part of my life. I think development wise, you know? Okay. That's so, okay. That doesn't sound nearly as crazy. And like out there as like hearing you explain it that way is like, I can actually relate to that quite a bit more. Cause I just, I never understood when you're telling me these stories of, you know, living on top of whatever mount, what was the name of that mountain more in the interior you spent two winters on top of. Uh, so that's, that's further into the almost like cascade range close yeah. to the border. So that's up the Chilliwack Valley. And there's uh there's one area where it was a uh, chipmunk Creek going up to uh Shem Peak. There's like a little saddle in there. I uh, stayed up there. And then also uh, another area called, it's like the airplane Creek uh, area. And they're, they're kind of part of a range there in the Chilliwack mountains. And uh, yeah, so that, that was definitely when I started those projects, but it was, it came a little later, like uh, would have been maybe a winter later after I I'd quit high school. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. So yeah, okay. That that sounds a lot more normal. I guess <laughs> I was kind of doing the same thing, I guess, but it was more like building dirt jumps with my buddies in the forest or like, I guess, you know, I was never into the drugs and all that kind of scene in high school. But yeah, I guess I drove my parents crazy as far as coming home like super late because I'd just been out hiking or biking and just come home in the middle of the night. And they'd be like, where the f have you been for how long? And it's like, I mean, to them, I guess they Put up with it more because it was okay he could be doing this or he could be inside playing video games so they put up with it yeah for me it's a much better option <laughs> yeah for sure yeah so 
for you, would like someone like Yvonne Chouinard have been someone that you were like idolizing at that age? I'm just trying to get the idea here. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I really loved uh, I really loved Messner. Um, Who? Sorry? I don't know if you're Reinhold Messner. He's actually really really co- close to where you're staying right now, but is uh, is uh, probably one of historically one of the most uh, you want to go down like the crazy list of ascents and epic adventures this guy's insane like um i think he was one of the first to do all the eight thousand meter peaks without oxygen okay and uh but like the way he did things it wasn't about like you know some guys they do like these massive expeditions and they like make such a big show out of it and it's it's such a big ordeal and it's all about conquering the, the mountain and and then they're so victorious when they're when they come home and it just seems like such a shit show. And this guy would just do things, everything solo. Um, obviously, he had, like, they had to publicize the stuff because sponsors, like, people had to pay for what he was doing. But the way he went about things, you know, like, just no oxygen, full gas, like, what took some people, like, for the same ascent, like, five days, he does in, like, one day. Um, it's, yeah, you could, you just have to look him up and he, <laughs> you'll be pretty blown away by his, uh, his background and his history. Um, but at, at that time, that was my big, uh, influence, the, in the climbing world that I just, I, I just loved his style. He, you know, like when he would do something like Everest, he would, he would, uh, take yaks in as his Sherpas. So he was like, he grew up as a herder in like the, pretty sure like in the Tyrolean part of Italy, like, uh, the, yeah. So he's, uh, yeah, it's just amazing stories. And probably one of the, the craziest stories is when he, I think they were up on Annapurna and uh, they were they were coming down off the, off the mountain, they caught in a storm and his brother, <clears throat> his brother got taken out in an avalanche. He was ahead and he didn't, he didn't really know. And he went back and he was trying to search for him. And like, he just kept searching in this blizzard and it, essentially, he doesn't know how he ended up down in this village, but someone found him like in this ditch, like fully emaciated, um, you know, super far away from the mountain, like obviously totally different. Yeah, a totally different climate and world. And uh, he had all this frostbite and all this stuff. And like he he doesn't have much recollection of like how he ended up there and how he survived because it's like a. I can't remember how many days later, but it's just crazy, crazy stories like this. Um, mm. The guy's a true, true legend. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm totally on the same page with you there as far as like, I think it'd be really cool to get in a high altitude mountaineering after my cycling career. But I think it's so lame when you hear about guys spending like 40, 60 grand to have people basically carry them to the top of Everest and be like, oh yeah, I climbed the mountain. It's like, okay, yeah. <laughs> with the oxygen bottles yeah. and the, it's like, come on. Like, I'm the same. I, I have a real problem with that because I believe it's it's more, um, you know, climbing is just about, for me, it's about being out there. I don't really care about like, okay, it's cool in the big mountains if it's high altitude, but it shouldn't really matter like what peak or whatever. It's like, it's more just being out there and, and doing that, that activity. It's such a beautiful thing. And, and we have, you know, you think of, we're both from BC you could explore there forever. The coast range is 
it just goes on forever and there's untouched big glaciers up there you know so for me it's you don't have to go and fly you know across the world and just all this garbage and waste and oxygen bottles just just to get you to the top of this peak you know it's like enjoy where you're where you're at and i think obviously that's going to change a lot now with uh the way things are going on this planet but um yeah i'm with you there it just seems like so ridiculous when when guys start taking on these massive expeditions and yeah. Well, for me, I just don't understand what the goal is anymore. Like, are we, if we just want to go for a walk in the park, we don't need to go to the Himalayas, like what you're saying. And if the goal is to climb the mountain, maybe we should be climbing a mountain that we can actually climb, not have the mm-hmm. Sherpas carry us to the top of. Yeah, exactly. But anyways, something I wanted to ask, I've been meaning to ask you about for a long time now. And uh, I guess I probably would have set this as like a goal uh, last fall. So I was trying to think of like, okay, a lot of my goals are based around cycling and to give myself some more balance here. I was trying to think of, okay, how could I, what if I could set myself the goal of, I want to try to raise just a little bit of money together to do this fall. Obviously this has now gotten thrown all out of, all out of whack because of the lockdown. But last fall, I came up with the goal of at the end of this season, I'd love to either go to the Himalayas and do a climbing trip there just because I've loved looking at the photos of just the massive mountains. It doesn't have to be Everest or anything like that, but just to do, you know, some higher altitude mountaineering or get in a paragliding and learn how to do that. And I was like, you know what? I wonder if I organized it all, if I could convince Swaino to come do it with me. Is that something you'd ever be interested in? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, look, it's, it's definitely appealing to me. Um, yeah. I, paragliding is something that I, <laughs> I think is really sweet. And definitely as you, <sighs> yeah, it just seems like such a good day out. You know, you, you get the good ascent, the exercise of climbing all day, and then you just launch off, you know, the the peak or whatever your launch area is, and and then you're back down in the valley, and you're just kind of capturing all the best parts of being up in the mountains, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, big trips like that, I don't know, I've, I've traveled so much in my life at this point, I still feel like, you know, here I am in the middle of the Pyrenees, I... I, I get to go out every day and be around big peaks. I know it's not the Himalayas, but I'm telling you, it's, it's enough for me at the moment. Um, I, I'm sure that bug will come back, but like I said, I've just finished uh, 20 years of, you know, running around the world, um, trying to accomplish things and, and <laughs> do all that stuff. So it's like, I just feel like it's, it's really nice to be in one, in one place at the moment. Okay. Cool. But definitely down the road, it's it's something I know I would. It'll come back to you, like just how it is in life, you know. Sure. It's just how I'm feeling at this moment, but. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. And so going back to cycling, you made the jump up to the world tour really late in life. Like you're quite a bit older than that. How did that jump up to Green Edge come to be? Like what I know, obviously you got your results at the Worlds in the time trial. And I'm just wondering, what were was there any sort of specific conversations, relationships with somebody, a result, a contact, a specific moment? How did that uh, come to be? Like when the conversation happened, like, hey, do you want to go up to the world tour and race at the, the very top of this sport? Well, <clears throat> it's, it's a funny question because when that t- was all happening, I actually didn't want to race in the world tour. I didn't really want to go to Europe. Um, I was pretty content doing what I was doing. That was the year of, uh, last year of Symmetrics. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened we 
stopped getting paid like two months into that year. Um, and we had the option to continue racing or maybe get paid out like whatever the, the team had left. And to the character of all the guys there, they, they basically uh, opted in to, to finish the season racing because they just knew it was going to be better for everyone if we could continue racing, showing ourselves. And, you know, up to that point, my, my policy had always been like, you race and you show yourself, you don't have to go and promote yourself. Um, it's either clear that you're, a team wants you and they want, they want to have you on their team or not. And if it's not the case, then I'm, I was never one to go looking for, for a contract. Um, but that's not me trying to sound cocky or whatever. It was just that uh, my heart like was in so many other things that I was, I was content if my time racing just stopped. It wasn't that I didn't like racing. Is that I, I knew there was a crazy balance to try and, and keep this thing rolling. And sometimes I felt like the price was too much. So I was always fine if, you know, it didn't work out. Um, so that actually helped me be really relaxed and not at all stressed about racing and just really have fun. And I cared about racing my ass off. I cared about being fit. I cared about all those things. So it just allowed me to have, yeah, to basically race to my potential, I think. Um, and in 2008, I had a, had a big year. <clears throat> it was Olympic year. Uh, I mean, there's a million stories we could go into about that. But at the end, I, I didn't really want to go to the World Tour. But uh, at the time, Garmin Slipstream was interested. And I just I looked at it like, okay, I'll sign two-year deal and just see if it works out see because at that point i was like might as well go and see what europe's like and at least you did it you know mm-hmm. um it what definitely wasn't my dream and it definitely wasn't something i was like super excited about i was just very like okay yeah and uh so it wasn't like the big you know for a lot of i think for a lot of young guys to sign a world tour contract is super exciting and like you know they're it's like a real accomplishment in life for me. It was just like, yeah, okay, we'll see, see what happens. And it's, <laughs> that's kind of my attitude at, at the time. I was just had so many other things I loved doing that, um, that wasn't my end all be all to, to life. So I don't know if that explains it very clearly, but, uh, because like I said, there's a million stories in there, but that's kind of the rough outline of, of what went down there. Sure. And was there like a specific moment? Like, did like who specifically approached you or did someone go like, did one of the team owners go and be like, Hey, you know, we got this, this crazy guy from Canada. He's a little bit older. He loves to, he's got an interesting background. He's not your typical Euro guy who wants to collect Porsches and watches and stuff, but he's super freaking strong and maybe we should give him a chance. And then, you know, did someone come up to you in a cafe or after a race? I think, uh, you know, Jonathan Vodder has a really good, track record of like kind of finding different guys that either make it or they don't and and they sometimes make it really well or <laughs> they they fail uh pretty pretty roughly but um he i think one of, that's one of the things i really respect about jonathan is that he was always willing to take that risk whereas like the traditional uh european sports director is always like oh you know they 
they have like an age cut off and then it's just like it's so cookie cutter you know like this guy has to come out of this system he has to be at this age he has to have this kind of racing in his legs or else he's just a piece of crap you know sure and uh, i think that's a horrible way to run uh uh professional cycling sports team um because you have to have I don't know. I, there has to be something else. There has to be something special there, some character, um, not just this robotic numbers-based, uh, you know, chart where everything has to be <laughs> just so, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he he was the one who, who was kind of keeping an eye on, on me. He's always got his finger on the pulse with um, U.S. cycling. And, uh, well... U.S. North American Cycling. That year, I won both. I know he he. Uh, not sure if he won both in the past or if he won the gigantic stage like yourself. But um, yeah, I think he always just kept an eye on like who was kind of coming up, and and for me, that's just a smart move. Um, you know, because it's still a risk because a guy can have a big motor, but you still have to take two years of getting your head bashed around before. Uh, <laughs> you know if you have anything you know sure and so at that time i guess you had a, or you clearly had a much bigger perspective on life and you know what you wanted and what you enjoyed and like you just said getting that world tour contract wasn't a big deal for you and so this past year at the end of last season i basically had to come up with standards and you know what do i really want in cycling right now and coming up with you know what is my standard of things I will accept and sacrifices I will make and what things I won't. And this past winter, I was really coming to grips with, okay, do I really want to keep down this cycling road and what will keep me in this sport and what will say, no, let's do something else. And I got to the point where I was like six days away from walking away from racing professionally to go after like trying to go to the Olympics for cross country skiing, like go a completely different path. And I'm, I'm glad I didn't do that, but I had to come up with those standards for that. And you helped me a lot with trying to like, just work through that and basically just having someone I could just vent that to and be like, man, do I sound crazy here? I'm wondering what were the kind of things that, uh, your standards are, I guess, to decide when you would, it, when you would accept to keep doing this racing thing or something you would do differently. Like, I know you once said to me that if the team told you when you're racing professionally, if the team came to you and said, Hey, Swain, you can't, and your contract, it says you can't go backcountry ski touring anymore because you couldn't get hurt. And you said, you know, I'd, I'm pretty sure you said I'd stop pro racing before I did that because it's just not worth it to me anymore for that. I'm wondering what kind of standards and stuff did you have for yourself there and sacrifices you decided would be okay to make and which ones you wouldn't accept anymore? Uh, for me, health was always number one. So like I was kind of mentioned earlier, like that that difficult balance of like, you know, doing the thing that you love but is also – can be hellish on your body. Um, I always wanted to find that that sweet spot where, because I don't think crazy endurance sports are the the key to health. I think there's some good things that come of it, some good adaptations that are helpful. But I think for the long haul, it's not the 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 key. Doing grand tours is not the key to longevity. So um, health was was number one. So anything that kind of conflicted with that, I wasn't super keen on. And for me. Uh, limiting risky sports uh, was just not not a priority for me in the sense of those things are so important to to my my happiness I guess mm -hmm. so um, 
but I also believe like we have to do these other things in order for, for myself. Um, look, I was never like this super gifted, talented rider that came out of the junior ranks and just, you know, bone density of a fairy and can just dance up the mountains. Um, so the, this, the different skills I had came from doing these other activities. And I also believe that like through those things, you get that good balance through other skills. So you're, you're practicing other things, training your brain in different ways. Um, look, life isn't just about cycling. And I didn't want to come out of this sport at 35, absolutely buckled, hunched over like Mr. Burns and wondering what, like, was it really worth it all you know mm -hmm. and uh, so yeah those things like i saw them written in contracts but it didn't really matter to me because i i'd also go based on the fact of like oh you know i'm 35 or whatever and i've been doing this my whole life haven't hurt myself so you just got to keep going on those things and i know for a lot of people that sounds ridiculous because lately i feel like more than ever there's just always this fear about what could happen and I just don't think that's a way to live life. I think you, you have to just go based on your feel and what you know um, over experience. And if you've been lucky to have a lot of experience, you can make better judgments sometimes. And, and uh, for myself, that was, yeah, I would be willing to walk away from, from the sport because I also knew what I loved about the sport was also what I had at Symmetrics. And, uh, there, there was not always going to be another Symmetrics, but that brotherhood and that traveling around the world and doing crazy events, <laughs> that was a lot of fun. And, and I knew that that could be found elsewhere. So the world tour wasn't everything. It was just a part of my life. I felt like I had to experience just because I'd gone that far, you know? Yeah, sure. You didn't need the world tour title. No. Okay, no. cool. And then, so, I mean, we've both gone down the, and taken quite an interest in like the biohacking world and, you know, following whatever, like Rhonda Patrick and all kinds of different stuff that, I mean, the Euros look at me like I'm a space alien when I talk about blue blocking glasses and circadian rhythms and cold exposure and grounding and all these things that, you know, you kind of got me started on and I absolutely treat as religion now. I'm so in touch with that stuff and I'm very grateful I have, but I'm wondering, uh, is there anything... And of course, yeah, like you said, endurance sports isn't the key to longevity for sure. What are uh, some things that you've changed since stopping racing and like performance on the bike is not the biggest thing anymore? Like, is there anything that you've now you've changed? Like you're allowed to do some push-ups now and maybe you don't have to crush so much refined sugar. Are there any things that you've changed since that? Well, I think, um, you know, I was, I always actually believed in, in weightlifting and doing, uh, upper body stuff during during racing um so that hasn't changed I, I definitely lift a lot more weights we're lucky during all this we have a, a gym down in the garage so looking um, up that's been that's been really nice um look with the whole biohacking world i think one of the biggest things that um i would say because i've you know we've discussed a lot of this stuff in the past and I've gone down some rabbit holes for sure. And I think that's important to experiment and learn for yourself what works for you. And I'm going to say that's probably number one, find what works for you. Don't take some uh, blogger word just because uh, he's a sedentary guy who sits at a computer all day. That might work for him, that keto diet or 
whatever the hell he's spouting on about. It has to work for you. Um, that's kind of number one. And then uh, the other big one is the most simple path is generally the one like, okay, not simple in the sense of the protocol or whatever. Like, yeah, you have to suffer to adapt. So I don't mean simple in that sense. But keeping things that you can actually do on a daily basis and not stressing about the million other little things that, you know, might be affecting you in an adverse way, if you know what I mean. Sure. So, you know, there's a million things once you go on the internet and you read all these different, I mean, look, there's a guy, you probably, a lot of people have probably heard of him, Ben Greenfield. Mm -hmm. When you hear this guy talk about what he does in a day, I know he's promoting products and, and doing all these different things. But like some of the things he says, like he'll do in a day, you're just like, how is that possible? Yeah. And you have a family and kids <laughs> and you're just like, like, I know what you can actually do in a, in a, in a day, like when you're giving her and it's like, it's, it's totally insane. Cause all those protocols take a half an hour, 45 minutes here, this and that. So I guess what I'm, I'm getting back to is like the most simple protocol, cold light exposure, grounding, those things resonate with me a lot i get a big bang for my buck out of those things and they're easy to do every day and then eating real food it within the season as close as you can get to your house and if you can keep it to those things i tell you, you like over time you're going to have some some really good effects and it's you're not running around trying to hook your bluetooth app up to this uh, special monitor to check your um, HRV and then you know getting a special light on your nutsack and all of these things that just I mean it's cool don't get me wrong and and I love the science behind it. I love to read about it but I think sometimes maybe those crazy extra protocols might be good in a very acute case where someone is having really big problems you know Mm -hmm. But I think for, for most of us, we just need to get our circadian rhythm on track. And that comes to me, very simple, grounding and sunlight in the morning hours, some good UVB during kind of, you know, 10 to 12, where you're producing vitamin D, and then uh, respecting the sundown at night. And, and that, like you mentioned before, wearing some blue blockers is super simple. They don't look like uh, space goggles anymore. And, uh, yeah, not like not basically not overstimulating your brain before, before bedtime. So yeah, I, at this point, I don't really want to complicate it any more than that. I think you get a lot out of sticking to those things. And I think where most people run into the problem is that they want to, they want to burn the candle at both ends. They want to like disrespect nature and then mm -hmm. they want to biohack it away. And it's like, you can't, <laughs> you, you cannot defeat nature, you know, yeah. um, it, you'll always pay the price. And I think those decisions of like respecting nature's rhythms, they're hard at first because the rest of the world is all about doing the opposite of what nature provides for us. It's about staying up late, alien blue light on always. I mean, sometimes when I, you stay in hotels, it's like these fucking life man like you're just <laughs> you know it's like you should be like going to sleep and it's like uh it's 
brighter than a sun in your face, you know? Um, yeah, and there's just so many things that, that affect us in, in uh, negative ways in, in current society. So it is hard to make those changes, but uh, once you do, you start to feel the effect. And uh, I think it just, it's such a trickle down effect of so many different things hormonally and with your cortisol and with your sleep, it's, uh, yeah, you, you just get big dividends without having to do a ton of work. Sure. And then I guess going back to cycling then, um, when you did make the jump over to Europe, that's a huge jump for North Americans to make. Cause there's the cultural stuff off the bike. There's, you know, setting up a whole new life here and then it's totally different racing. And what were the hardest things you had to adapt to or that you found the hardest to get used to when you moved here to Europe? Or was there anyone that really helped you a lot with that? Um, yeah, well that, uh, year in 2008, um, I came over before Worlds to check out Girona because I knew that's where I was going to be moving to. And, you know, I'd always lived out in the country, so it was uh, kind of weird for me to, to move to uh, a city. And probably the best move I did, like, fairly quickly was I moved out to the country, like Banyolas. And for like almost the same price as I was renting an apartment, I rented a house with property. And for a guy like me, that that was the best move. As I as I'm understanding your situation, you know, you're living in uh, such a basically 180 degree opposite uh, setup than you were last year when you're up in uh, Germany compared <laughs> to uh, where you live now. You know, and it it makes such a big difference. Your environment's everything. And uh, I would say for me, making it in Europe, that was a big part because then I started to fall in love with the country and the land. And I was, I was happy to come home. And I think for a lot of guys, that's one of the number one moves and, and one of the number one mistakes. And I've seen a lot of young guys hold themselves up in these little, you know, square box concrete apartments and it's dark in there like a cave and they play video games and, that's just not a life and it's nothing to come home to. And this is a, this is a long game. So you, you gotta, it's like a lot of things in life. You have to kind of back yourself and maybe you spend a little more to be in a better environment. Um, but you have to look at it like this is for not just your physical health, your mental health, your spiritual health, these things that are going to allow you to stay balanced during this crazy job because it's a crazy job. Oh, I couldn't agree with normal you normal more. Yeah. I, absolutely 180 for me. Like I know last year by the end of it, I was so depressed and lonely and hated it. And was like, this sucks. I want to go home. <laughs> you just feel like an outsider and everything's just weird and different. And now here I'm living in paradise. I'm like, these are my people. Like I'm making friends with everybody. Here. Oh, it's, it's so good. So that's a great example. I mean, you, you get a bit of community, right? And you start to feel like, ah, I can do this. And and those things just grow, you know, and you start to create better friends and, and all of a sudden you have a life and you, you want to stay there instead of run home. And I remember, you know, like that first year when I stayed in Girona, I, I, I just wanted to go home, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. 
for sure. No, I last year I couldn't wait to go home. This year now, like I know a lot of guys talk about like the travel and time away from home is so hard for them. For me, it's not a problem at all now that I'm enjoying the place I live because it's like, man, this is a really cool experience. Like I don't have a wife or kid or anyone depending on me that I can that I I can just live and explore and have take the time to actually see the world right now. So I'm cool doing this as long as I need to or want yeah. to. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. And then, so I guess why, um, so you're in Andorra now, why Andorra? So many pros live up there. It sounds like you were one of the first guys moving up there. Why Andorra? Yeah. Uh, back in the day, there wasn't many up here. Um, it was a funny little place. And I remember actually my first, uh, Catalonia in 2009, we finished on one of the mountain passes up here. I didn't even know we were in another country. Um, and we, we spent the night in Andorra and I just thought like, I, I'd, I'd never heard of this place growing up. You know, I knew Spain, I knew France, but, uh, yeah, it kind of blew me away about it. So that kind of got me curious about it. And then I started, you know, I collect maps. So then I started getting more maps of the Pyrenees and, and I just started seeing, it was like right in the heart of the proper Pyrenees and this, on this side anyways. And, um, and then, uh, you know, as time goes on, you're in Europe and, uh, I met my now current wife and we were like, we wanted to basically move here. It's, it's like right in the heart of the mountains. It, um, has a good residency setup. So like if you're, you are coming from Canada or something like that, it's a lot easier to get your residency here than say, for example, France or, or Spain, um, you have to pay some cash, uh, like a cash bond to the government. But uh, as soon as you get by that, then you're you're good to go. And that was appealing as well. So it was like uh, a way for my wife and I to have residency, and uh, but also live in, uh, in a place that we both really loved. And um, you know, when I look at where we live here, it's 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 something I'd be trying to assimilate back in Canada. You know, we're up this valley, up around 1,600 meters, and uh, just out the back, there's a peak up to 2,700 meters. And I go up there like, you know, we have, we're surrounded by peaks, and it's just a playground, you know. Um, the Enduro mountain bike trails are just basically out the back door here. And when we get a good winter, I can go ski touring right from the house. So it, it just ticks off so many of the, the things that I would like in Europe and yet it's totally different than anything I could ever find in Canada. You know, like we just, in Europe, there's such a crazy population um, that it's just, there's always people everywhere. And I think that's one of the things I probably miss about Canada, but um, we're enjoying this experience for, for the time that we're, we're going to be here. So yeah, it, it, it caught my attention and, and then it just grew on me from uh, way back in 2009. Yeah, no, I, I, and I think what you're referring to there is something I noticed for sure coming here is, you know, being in the Alps, it's very much the same mountain culture, but they don't really have any wilderness here. You know, it's yeah. the one thing that they think I'm crazy for is I just decided I don't want a phone plan anymore. Like I, you can get Wi-Fi anywhere. And so I just said, sure. like, I'm not going to get a phone plan. Like if I don't have Wi-Fi, which is in like every cafe and house and building and whatnot, I don't really want people to contact me. Like I'd rather just yeah. be left alone for a little bit when I'm out there. And, uh, you know, they look at like my, some of my teammates here, look at me like I'm 
crazy for this because it's so dangerous because you know what if something happens i'm looking i'm like man like i just it, it, like hitchhiked my way home or like walk to the nearest road yeah. and gotten fight like there's no road here it's always my question you know before all this technology is like well what did people do before you know exactly yeah yeah you got by you know and <laughs> it's yeah, I just thought that was pretty funny. And then so another thing I was thinking about, uh, like a couple weeks ago or so, and then I thought, you know what, I should ask Swain why he never did that. And I th I'm pretty sure I know the answer why maybe you didn't do this. But you lived in a, a trailer at one port, point in your life, which is like a whole other story I don't want to get into. But when you came to Europe here, if you wanted to, you know, I was thinking like, man, it'd be kind of cool to just live in like, rather than renting a place, what if you're to just like, buy like a camper and just live in that and then you could just try like, while you're racing and living the life over here, you could just be moving around a lot more and be that much more mobile. Did you ever think about doing something like that? Yeah, yeah. You know, I it definitely it's appealing to me. I love I love uh van living, R V living. Um but you know it's that's a real I always have to remind myself that I romanticize it like you wouldn't believe. Mm. And so when I think of that I'm parked up on some mountainside, it's sunny everything's perfect you come back from a ride you have your little outside shower you cook some some dinner and you go to bed you know but it's not always like that you know? yeah. you're trying to find parking on some janky little side street because you have to go get groceries somewhere but you can't go into the city central i mean in europe it's a whole other can of worms i think it's a lot easier believe it or not and well for sure it's a lot easier in north america yeah um, there's more places to go <laughs> Yeah, and, and I don't know if you ever remember um, two characters that wrote on uh, Spider Tech, but they're uh, Martin Gilbert and um, Kevin Lacombe. Okay. They shipped, they container shipped an RV over here and tried to do that um, in the season of 2012. And it, 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 it just didn't go over well. Um, they ended up like, you know, I'm sure they had. Like I said, they're great moments, but a lot of times, you know, in France, it's piss and rain, and you got to drive up to the race, and the tolls are like 200 euros later because you're now like a double axle, certain weight vehicle, and okay. <laughs> it just it gets epic, you know, and and uh, it's not this um, perfect scenario of like uh, driving to the race is not always cool. The race finishes somewhere else, and you got to somehow get back to. There's a million other logistics and. I, I think you could do it, but it's uh, there's something about just going home to where all your stuff is. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> but, I guess uh, the, yeah. the dirtbag van life living is a little bit more regulated in Europe than in yes. North America. Sure. Yeah, okay. and you got to remember, like most directors are not going to be super keen on thinking, oh yeah, you're driving over here. Yeah, yeah. yeah sure. You've been living in this thing for the last month. Mm -hmm. They just, it's not part of their. They're not Jonas Carney, let's put it that way. Sure, you know? sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I've, I've learned that. <laughs> they look at me like I'm a, I get called Grizzly and Tarzan and all this other stuff because I sure. like, sleep with the windows open and whatnot or yeah. whatever else. <laughs> we don't have to get into that. But um, Okay, so in the years leading up to you making the jump up to the world, so obviously now at this point in your life, you had a great career in the world tour. You've made some money. You got some money from that now and I don't know what the future looks like for you now but in those years leading up to the world tour and you didn't even have any ambitions to go up to the world tour what was like kind of your plan for the future like okay I'm gonna do this cycling thing for as long as it lasts maybe I could go to an Olympics or something like that but 
what was your plan for the future for like, okay, after cycling, what do I want to do? Like you, you come from being this mountain man. What was the, the route for that? Was it like, I mean, I think of a lot of my friends doing the same thing. It's like ski instructor or whatever they can do to just stay in the mountains for as long as possible. What were your plans for the future at the time? Well, that's just it, man. I was, I've never been a planner from okay. the very get go. So I was my whole life constantly things just happen in a way that I, you know, like, it just it, stuff just always worked out when you weren't stressing about every little detail. And, um, you know, when, before I got into bike racing, didn't care. I, I didn't care about, uh, the future because I was doing what I loved. I was never in a situation where I was like, Oh, this is horrible. I have to get out of this situation. If only my life was better uh, at every moment of my life, it's always been, a really good moment so um obviously you, you have your shit moments don't don't get me wrong here but you i hope you understand the gist of what i'm saying is like most everything i was doing i was doing because i wanted to do it and i was never thinking like i had to better my situation sure there was times i needed a little more money and and uh wished i could pay off uh whatever you know um just have a little extra cash for <laughs> for some nice things but you know that was at the time i didn't know any different i didn't know any better and especially before bike racing um in many ways bike racing ruined a lot of that for me because you start to live at a different level and have expectations um and i i miss those days you know back way back before when i was living on the bike and traveling around just doing you know just traveling essentially i didn't have anything and i didn't didn't want anything more than that what i had on my trailer was that was it and it, i wasn't trying to get more because i knew it was about the experiences it was like where i was going next that was the value of things um so life evolves right i mean as you as you go through life you acquire different things you all of a sudden you you're doing different things that um yeah and and all of a sudden your experience changes and i'll never be able to grasp what i had so i feel super fortunate that i lived like that because it it's allowed me to have a really good perspective in what i do now um i've lived on both sides and now i can pick and choose kind of the, the right path uh for myself but yeah, going back, if, if you were to ask, like during that time, I wasn't thinking uh, I need to be winning this race or going with this team or making this amount of money. I was just, look, I was happy to be getting paid at all to put on tight outfits and race around in circles was, uh, that kind of surprised me that anyone would, would pay you for that, you know? Sure, well, I mean, so I guess the, uh, I mean, I certainly, when you started mentoring me, this wasn't what I was thinking I would learn from you, but the biggest thing you've taught me is gratitude for the present and exactly everything you just said. And, uh, you know, you once said to me that, uh, that light, exactly what you just said, how that life you had when you were just living on a trailer, that was like some of the happiest times of your life. Like you didn't have anything, but you also had no stress and you could just, either there's no plans. It was just, fully enjoying the moment right now. And that really resonated with me 
this year during all of what's going on right now, because the way I look at it is, you know, I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen at the end of this year. And if cycling were to end for me at the end of this year, like if the whole sport were to just implode and be over with, you know, I, if I just spend this time worrying about that, I wouldn't have actually enjoyed this time right now. And right yeah. now I can just totally. enjoy the fact that I get to, I have a literally a once in a lifetime opportunity to just look around the world, to see the part of the world that I literally dreamed about since I was reading the MEC guidebooks or catalogs when I was like four years old looking at the Alps. Like I have an opportunity to explore all that. And then the other opportunity I'm thinking is like, well, okay, I'm in this barn up in the Alps, totally quiet by myself, living in the perfect environment where I just have a little wood stove, a little stream running by the place, just tucked away up in the mountains here. And I can just read and learn and study more. And, you know, if I can out of this. That's all I was going for. Yeah. And so has that changed at all for you now that you do have more in your life, whether that's, you know, your family, your belongings, anything like that? Well, you you know, like, yeah, like like I alluded to before, your your life just changes. And, you know, you, you, uh, again, I wouldn't change it for the world. I love my life now and I love what I got to experience. I'm glad I had those moments of just absolutely like just living like a hobo I, I they were seriously some of the best times but also i believe now is, is some of my best times you know i have a, a little boy now he's two and a half and to just be part of his day and and you know like we we go hiking now up this creek and we go way back to this little pool we dammed off and we go swimming uh in the cold Pyrenean uh, snow, snow melt water. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful part of my life now. So I, I don't know. I don't, I try not to like live in the past too much. Um, reminiscing about how great it was. I, I, I think that each moment, like what you're understanding now in your situation is like, yeah, you might not be able to come back to that, that situation. And it doesn't mean you won't have another experience like that again in life. But this might be that this very special moment in your life where you you get to live like this. So make the most of that, you know, like because you don't know when these things come and go, and uh, it's just something to always kind of keep in check in your life, to always realize that this might be one of the best moments of your life, and and uh, and not just be tunnel vision always just push into the next thing because you just miss everything in the process for sure and you know it's funny hearing you say you know gunner's uh two years old or two and a half years old now because i i remember when he came around because we were both in uh, bergen for the world championships at that time and you were rushing back to for his arrival <laughs> you know i i think it's pretty cool watching him kind of grow up over uh your wife's instagram feed and stuff like that which i you know i think is pretty cool but, uh, you know, I guess, you know, you grew up being out in the mountains and your dad I, and or maybe your dad and your mom exposed you a lot to the mountains and stuff. Is there anything that you plan to instill in Gunner? Like, I mean, that you had such an unconventional way of growing up. Is there any sort of policies or anything you want to instill in him that's different or it's a way of route that you might push him a little bit or try to expose him to more? There's, it's tricky, you know, like I, I, Yes, like there's a there's a lot of things, but um, for me, it's not about pushing him in any direction. It's about exposing him to as much cool stuff 
as possible and then just letting it evolve in his own mind what he wants to do. And sure. so it's like everything in life, you give people tools to make their own decisions. And all I want for him is to be able to make his own call in life, to, to be able to choose what he wants to do and not live up to others' expectations. Um, I have no hope. I like, I don't want to push him into sport. I don't want him to feel like he has to like live up to anything that, that we think he should do. You know, I want him to find what he, what he wants to do. But I think through all that, you know, a healthy dose of nature and mountains and life outside is, is crucial. And just staying away from all the conventional bullshit of televisions and iPads and all these things that are designed to capture children's attention for mm -hmm. hours so that parents can have the relief of not having to deal with their child. But I think why well, have a child then? Um, mm -hmm. yeah, there's, the there's a lot of things that um, I believe in um, when it comes to, to kids, but in the end, it's like, it, it comes back to that simple thing. We could go on about this and that, but it's a simple thing that a lot of times people don't want to hear about. It's just time. And if you're not willing to take the time, then it's, uh, yeah, you shouldn't really be a parent. <laughs> sure. And so going back, uh, you just mentioned, we're talking about this time in a, uh, and what you're doing at the same time. And you're someone who's, uh, who's quite well read, you know, I've, uh, I like to read quite a bit and I've chomped through quite a few books and I've recommended all kinds of books to you. And you've always said, yep, I already read that one. It's like when I try to recommend any gear to you and be like, yep, I, I already got that one on. What are, uh, some of your favorite books that you've ever read over the years? Or if, is, is there maybe a book that, uh, you wish you could like download into Gunner's brain if, or anyone else's brain, like something everybody should read or some of the books that you got the most out of? Whew. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there's quite a few. I mean, I go through phases. I go through phases where I read quite a bit and then, yeah. Um, I, I was a big fan of uh, Orwell back in the day, George Orwell. Um, mm -hmm. I used to go through those books when I was living up on the mountain. Um, there's a few like, like uh, one that actually speaks a lot to this part of the world. Um, Homage to, to Catalonia. And it's uh, basically Orwell. He joined the Spanish civil war to be able to write about it. And I thought that was, that was pretty friggin' awesome. Like, okay. I couldn't imagine, you know, like he's a British guy joining another country's war just so he could have the experience of to to write to write about it. And it's crazy because it really speaks to this part of Spain, Catalonia, and the separatist behavior and, and just kind of the it explains a lot about the people I find. Um in the good and the like yeah. Um, and then he also wrote a book called Down and Out in Paris and London. You know, like he has his, his famous ones, 1984 and mm -hmm. uh, Manor Farm, but uh, Down and Out in Paris and London is where he went to live like a hobo in those two cities. And just like the, the life of people at that time, just scraping by and, and the, the just the, the lives they led, it just blows my mind that people could live like that, you know? Um, but yeah, there's a, I, I love um, Sapiens, 
Yep. Is a re- recent one that I'm uh, I'm a big fan of. Um, yeah, I, I'm trying to think of any others. Um, Have you ever read out. Walden? Walden. Uh, Life in the Woods. Life in the By Woods. Thoreau? Uh, no, I have not. No? no. Okay. Or Vagabonding was another one I know I recommended to you, and you said yeah. you read that as well. That's a yeah. good one. Rolf Potts. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I remember one. I mean, one that sticks out from childhood that really captured my m- imagination was um, The Other Side of the Mountain. Who's um, that by? I actually can't remember. That's that's a long time ago, but it was. Uh, and then there was also um, Where the Red Fern Grows. Another classic, but that also got my mind going about mountains and nature and yeah. But okay. yeah, the list the list could go on and on. Um, I don't have a a good list in front of me, but um, yeah. Sure, sure. And then I guess uh, again going back to cycling was uh so obviously you uh made it very clear to yourself that you're you were prioritizing health and longevity or like your mental health at least in the sport but what was the time that you were the most serious about performance any time in your career like was there a time that you really buckled down and decided to push it and being like okay i'm gonna make the extra sacrifices right now to for a specific event or something like that uh hmm. I would say in 2000, 2008 and 2012 are two ones that stand out. They were kind of important uh, years for me um, in the sense of really kind of buckling down. So 2008, I had big plans. It was an Olympic year. Um, at the time, we were going forward with some metrics, and it was, we were going to move up the pro-conti level. And, so on and so forth. So I, I really took that year quite uh, after, but in saying that <laughs> the year, the winter wasn't so serious because I probably cross country skied like 60 days um, that winter. And I think my first race wasn't, uh, wasn't until like uh, the Pan Am championships in Uruguay. Okay. Where were you cross country skiing at the time? Up in Rossland. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was living with, um, my two friends, Ethan and Alex, um, and it was just such a good winter. We were like doing like double, triple days, like basically go ski touring in the morning, go do a classic session, come back, go skate up until like it was dark, headlamp at home. Um, just nice. big days, but like it had nothing to do with biking. Uh, it was, it was such a good switch off and I, I actually believe that's why I had one of my best years on on a bike cool um, because then I, that kind of rolled into the Olympics which I really buckled down with I I remember I trained like I was I, I thought you know my competition in Beijing they're all coming from the tour so I was like I have to do like in my mind what feels what I think a tour would feel like <laughs> which sure. I had no no idea at that point but um I, uh, do you have any specific stories from that time? Ah, uh, just any ridiculous remember, thing you pushed it too far or something? Almost every day, but <laughs> <laughs> I remember my bro was uh, motor pacing me a lot, and we were up in Kamloops, uh-huh. and it was it was hot as hell. And yeah, I remember just coming back absolutely buckled every day. But 
it's like there's a time of your life where that just feels awesome. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying it doesn't feel awesome now, but like it, in my, in my recollection, it was like, if I was to go and do that kind of stuff now, I don't think I would think every day was awesome. But <laughs> in that time of my life, I, I certainly did. Sure. Um, so that kind of stands out. And then, um, yeah, I, I held that form until worlds of that year, which is, yeah, I mean, that's pretty good. It's a couple of months of really like, I really buckled down and was able to maintain that. Um, and then in 2012, uh, coming off of, uh, spider tech going to green edge, um, I just started altering tons of nutritional stuff and, and, uh, made quite a big change in my physiology for myself. Cause I've just always been big uh, in general. I'm too big for cycling. Um, <laughs> Uh, so it's always like, it's one of those things like, what sort of things, what what sort of things did you change in your diet then? Uh, well, that's, I went down the path of like, uh, really going super low carb and kind of like uh, a lot of meal timing, not in a crazy way, but like it, that kind of stuff always gets crazy. If you know what I mean? Like you, you kind of become addicted to the process Mm -hmm. and the effect and quite often, like your first round through of doing that stuff, you have you have a really good effect, and then you start to like if you try and uh, copy that down the road, it's less effective. If you know what I mean, I don't know if you've ever dabbled yeah. with that, but um, for sure I had a really good effect. But uh, I'll tell you what, by Perry Roubaix of that year, so basically first of April, I was absolutely buggered. Sure, because um, I'd just gone. You know, I remember being in Torval Man and, and just eating like some hard boiled eggs after a steak <laughs> I, and like, or sardine. I was like going totally, yeah, crazy with it. And uh, it's weird because you can have a really good effect for quite, quite a while, but then you pay some big bills for a month or two. Sure. And uh, so, yeah, that's, those are times I've taken it really seriously. And then after that, I kind of decided, look, the most sustainable route is the one that's going to keep you balanced and happy and healthy for the long, the long term. And at that point, I didn't really know if I wanted to keep doing it so long, but I was, I knew, you know, it's like everything, things change. And all of a sudden this became my job now. Now I'm starting to take it as a job. And so it became a bit more serious in general for me. Sure. And then, so you've had such a long career in pro cycling and you've been able to oversee a lot of guys at a, all levels of the sport. Is there anyone that who comes to mind as far as like the, the ultimate super talent that you've seen and then somebody else that's maybe that works the hardest that you're just amazed this person, like they, they don't have the genetics that should be in the, uh, they shouldn't have gotten as far in cycling as they have. And they've just been able to punch way above their weight just from a ridiculous work ethic or sacrifices that they've made. Is there any names that come to mind? So first one was most talented, like just the most yeah. easy. Like just a super freak. Yeah, I've known a few of those. <laughs> um, a few of the stands out are the 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 Yatesy brothers. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna add to that that they they work friggin' hard. Uh, it doesn't come super easily for them. Is there any stories um, you can think of that show that with them? Any like specific moments or anything like that? Things you've seen? 
Well, you know, I remember probably the first training camp they ever did with us. You know, they're just 20 years old or whatever coming out of the, the British system. And they're just taken away through the training camp as if it's no problem. And I just, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I've just seen too much. Like, like their first Tour de France is like, it's week three. And it's like, Whitey's talking them up to go in the breaks. And they're just, they're up there just launching these ridiculous attacks and most people are on their hands and knees, you know? Sure. Um, I, I got to see like, they're very, they're very beginning on onto the world tour and then their evolution into grand tour race winners. So um, that's, that's pretty crazy. Like over that, that period of time. Um, but like I said, I don't think for a lot of these guys, like we, we look back and think, Oh, it looks easy for them. But they're they're crazy, man. Like the the best guys I've known over the years. Yeah, they are super gifted and talented, but they're working so hard for that. Like uh, I would say, Michael Matthews is one that kind of stands out. That is like quite gifted. I mean, I've never seen a guy come out of a training camp and win a prologue. His first race one year was Paris, which is quite late, and he wins the opening prologue with no with no race nothing just just a training camp in south africa you know hmm. um yeah i mean i can only really speak about the guys that i i've worked with over the years um for sure there's some other in the freak zone um there's other guys that just work super hard like guys i have big respect for like uh chris Yule jensen uh luke durbridge um, these are guys that just, man, when it comes to training, they, they bust ass and they get it done and they'll, they'll always, <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, I think at the world tour, it's, there's a lot of guys like this. You can't, it's changed probably even in my time, you know, when I first came over in 2009, it's changed a lot as well. Like you can't just, uh, nowadays you can't show up to a race a little bit out of shape even like a an unimportant race it's like you you everyone shows up super fit or you're dropped on the first climb and you've you've probably felt that yourself like mm -hmm. if you're suffering a little bit and you you show up even at like a uh 2.1 in europe you're struggling on the climbs you know yeah. the way it goes is just warp speed and uh it, for me, it's like I've seen a change over in my time. When you first came over, it was uh, it was different. You know, you could you could kind of show up a little out of shape, and you could ride your way into fitness over the over the race. And now it's just like you better be on the first day, or you're you're out. Sure. Yeah. Is there, are there any specific examples or uh, stories you can think of with uh? Chris Juliansen or Luke Derbridge as far as like things you've seen them do where it's like, wow, that guy, that's dedication. This guy really wants it. Anything that comes to mind? Well, with Chris Juliansen, he doesn't speak a lot about stuff. He's not like a big, like, you know, he's not like a big, uh, talker in the sense of, yeah, he likes to talk shit in the, on the video camera, but, um, you know, uh, as far as a guy like a train camp, like he's always just crushing it never seen a guy like it's just he's always going that extra bit more and uh look some so for some people that'll just kill them but he seems to get stronger every year and um 
with Luke, it's more of a thing of like he just loves crushing himself, and uh, it's it's it goes back to you know something we've talked about before. There's part of your life you have to build that engine, and some of the only ways for guys is to is to just take it to the depths of hell sometimes, and and yeah, it's uh, <laughs> like I think of Luke, you know, just as an example of just. He's always got to ride at the thousand kj an hour policy, you know. So it's like it's not really a worthwhile ride for him unless he's burning a thousand an hour, <laughs> and uh, that's pretty standard for him. And and I was kind of of the same mentality. I just always felt like if you're going to be up there, you're either torn or you're you're busting ass. And uh, so yeah, I always had respect for for that kind of stuff because it's it's hard to have that motivation. You got to really love it. And, and the body's got to be pretty resilient to keep putting up with that. So yeah, okay. we could go down. There's a long list of guys for sure. But uh, I would say like, as the guys I work with, those, those names kind of stand out. Okay. And just before I ask you another question, what's your timeline? Like, do you have to run or are you running out of time or do you still have a bit of time? No, I'm, I'm good. Gunner will okay. be up in another half hour. Or so, so okay, cool. So I, uh, what so going off what you just said there the what i think is like the worst advice that i hear given in cycling specific is like to not do too much when you're a young guy like everyone always talks about like this cliff like you can't go over the edge and you can't push it too far and whatnot and i'm i was way too stubborn and hard-headed and too like i wouldn't listen to anybody if they told me to do less like i was always like no i have to do more 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 than everyone and if if we're talking about not going over that cliff, like I was flying off at sixth gear tapped, like just burning myself. Sounds about right. Sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I was like, my mentality was if everyone else is training 30 hours a week, I'm going to train 45. Like I was, I had to do more and more and more. And I think it's, that's when you're really young. I think that's actually something that's really important in the cycle, in cycling, partially like the physiology. I think maybe it builds an engine for later. That's debatable if that's true or not. But I think the more important thing is you kind of just figure out, is this for you to like really break yourself down when you're young and then figure out if this is something you're actually going to enjoy doing. Cause if you're not going to push it when you're young like that and you get, you invest more time and years into the sport and then it gets harder and harder and you kind of figure out later, ah, oh, you know what, this is getting pretty hard now. This isn't for me versus you might as well just go break yourself nice and early and figure out like, you know, throw the eggs at the wall. And if they break, get rid of them, try something new. <laughs> but my question to you off that, that's what I think the worst advice is. What is the worst advice you hear given in cycling? Ah, uh, there's a lot. Um, I'm going to add to to what you're saying. I agree to aspects of of what you're saying, but I think there's a big caveat in there in the fact that the best way to do that is to have like someone, a mentor, uh, an older person who's been through it to help you. So look, it's not always perfect. We're not always going to have that. But like for me, the best way that's going to work because you need someone who's been through it and understands the reactions, the different periods where like you either might quit or, you know, think you got it all figured out and you're actually just damaging yourself. Sure. Um, so I think it depends a lot on the person's character and then the, the environment and the people around them. And unfortunately I think a lot of people have the wrong people around them for, for that kind of stuff. 
either, like you said, telling them that's the worst idea ever, or they're telling them to do way too much or, you know, there's just bad advice all around. Yeah. And that's exactly um, what I'd add to, or go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's pretty much. <laughs> well, no, I was yeah, just going to add the fact that, uh, it's the very important part there is that you do have the right mentors and people giving advice. Like I feel incredibly lucky to have guys like yourself or Kevin field and other Mike Creed, like other guys that actually know what they're talking about advise me. Cause I know I was, I was so thick headed and stubborn when I was young and I've gotten better at accepting advice, but I've also learned to filter is, you know, who should I be listening to? And is this person giving me advice and they don't really know what they're talking about? Or, you know, I think it's incredibly valuable to have good mentors in your life. And I've certainly been very thankful for guys like yourself that I've had to help me help or help me with that stuff. Yeah. I think it's just, you know, it's, it's crazy because you're going down a path that, no one really knows like there's no real studies on grand tour world tour riders it's just anecdotal stories and because something worked for this guy doesn't mean it's good for you mm -hmm. and i think that's the the crazy business that we run off of is that everyone's trying to base it off like these superstars these freaks like we talked about before but their physiology isn't mine and the rules that apply to them don't apply to me, you know? And I think that's why, like going back, way back in the start of this conversation, where I said, you have to find what works for you. And so that's why that mentorship or like talking to someone who's been through it, getting their feedback and going like, okay, that makes sense, but maybe I can do this this way. And then you, you, you just kind of build what works for you. And I think that's a lot of times what makes athletes more than the, like uh, the, the certain opportunities or the the genetic gifts or whatever it's the one who keep persevering adapting and changing and growing in a intellectual way where they're applying these 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 new lessons these new rules and and actually continuing on a trajectory instead of just plowing away at the same thing and not really going anywhere you know yeah, no, I couldn't agree more with that. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So, some more fun questions, I guess, some lighter questions to go. How about, uh, you know, you're someone that, you know, I love gear, for example. You know, I, I live a pretty minimalistic life in a lot of senses. Like, you know, I have two pairs of pants, basically, and they're the same pair of pants, just in two different colors, just so I don't look completely like a hobo once in a while. But, you know, I have, you know, pretty good gear locker. But every time I try to talk to you about this stuff, it's always, oh, yeah, I already have that. I already have this. What's some of like the, the best gear that you have or like uh, some of the best things that you've ever bought from any sports, anything like that, your highlights, your gear locker. Uh, it doesn't even have to be like sports. Stuff. It could be like anything. It could be like a pillow, headphones, a wake up alarm clock, uh, anything really. Some of the best purchases you've ever made. I love bike packing stuff. I like gravel rigs. I like mountain bikes and uh, ski touring stuff. I, I mean, I like everything. <laughs> uh, the ski touring stuff, I love. I mean, the technology's come so far in just the time I've been kicking around on this planet. Um, but yeah, I love. I love the, the. There's a lot of new cool bike packing equipment coming out, and it's just lighter and better, and fits the bike better. It's it's incredible. Like. Um, yeah, the list could go on, but um, I don't know. I, I, I don't like to – pardon me? 
any specific ones that come to mind? Ah, companies like uh, Apidura, um, the company Fly Creek makes these wicked tents. There's a company called Ultimate Direction, makes a bunch of lightweight uh, bivy, bivy bags and, and crazy uh, ultra running gear that you can also apply to biking. Sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's there's a million different companies out there all making cool stuff and i've never been like a big name guy i just i just like i'm not like particular to any brand i just like companies that make good good stuff sure yeah how about uh like you know as you said earlier in the conversation you've spent the last 20 years bouncing all over the globe seeing all kinds of corners of the world is there any place that uh you still really want to go to explore Um, well, I still would, I've been down like, uh, Peru and, and these, and Argentina, but never made it to Patagonia. That's Mm -hmm. one of the the places. Uh, I always wanted to go to, uh, Nanchakna, Kanchakna, what the hell is it in Russia there? Um, okay. Basically right across from Alaska. Okay. Uh, that's a pretty wild part of the world. I mean, I think it's becoming more and more populated as people keep pushing out, but that's like uh similar to the whole panhandle of uh Alaska and the Aleutian Islands. Um Yeah, I love I love it up north. <laughs> as much as it's only really nice for a couple months out of the year. Sure. Um Yeah, I don't know. I think Canada has uh a lot of great stuff. A lot of stuff I still haven't seen, and I could be happy just spending my my days there. So, yeah, I'm not a big guy that has to get to to Everest um, or you know any specific places. It's just uh, I like remote areas. Uh, Queen Charlotte's is a place I'd love to go spend some time. Where's that? Ah, uh, that's just off the coast of BC, Queen Charlotte Islands. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, we're some of the biggest rainforest in the world, actually. Um, is that near like Haida Gwaii? Is that is it that far? Yeah, up? that's Haida. That's Haida Gwaii. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, when my dad first came over from Norway. He was uh, they put you to work for your citizenship. Mm-hmm. They they so he got a job uh, as a as a chokerman, and oh. he got sent up to Queen Charlotte's, and you know at that time. Mm-hmm some of the biggest trees in the world were being taken out of that, off that Island. It's crazy. Huh? Yeah. Cool. And then, uh, just, Oh, sorry. One thing I, you mentioned it earlier. Yeah. How you really like maps. And we were talking about this like a while back and I've been getting obsessed with, you know, old school maps, like topographic maps. And I've been putting them all up over the kitchen in the team house here and just going with a Sharpie and highlighting all these cool climbs and all the stuff I'm dying to explore. Uh, you know, if you've been doing this for a while, what, how do you do it that way? Cause I've just been going to like basically getting gas station topo maps, like one to 200,000 or hundred thousand and putting them up on my wall. But I'd love to get like a really cool map that would show like the whole Alps range or anything like that. Have you ever found anything like that? Anything besides just getting the classic gas station maps? Are there good ones you can get? Well, each region will have, it's like, it's like, you'll have to dig a little deeper than the gas station. You have to go to like, uh, 
you know, climbing shop and they'll be like, uh, like for example, in, in Spain, there's like Gaia Pyrenees. It's like a, a brand of topo maps and they show all the historical trails and routes on, on top of a topo map. So those are like specific ones that uh, really help you kind of figure out how the trail systems work and how the roads and all those different things connect. Um, but like Austria would have its own brand that I'm sure you'd, if you went to a climbing shop or something like that, they would have really good ones. Sure. But the tr the trick is you have like topo maps, like of like a small area. And then you have to have like a big one. So you can like kind of place where in the world you're actually looking at when you look at this topo map. Yeah. Okay. I, that's the biggest trick for me is like, I have my, my big maps and then I have all my like real fine close range maps. And, uh, it's, it's a nice, it's a nice thing, man, to spread it out on the table and have a look and yeah. see how everything connects. That's all I do in the Pyrenees here. It's just, uh, and there's still roots I, I'm just dying to do. So <laughs> Good. I'm yeah. glad I'm down a, a good path here, figuring it out if you're still into it. <laughs> yeah. Sweet. Okay, cool. And so as someone that's spent a ton of time out in the outdoors, you've seen so many cool places, so many special spots. If you had to get a tattoo of GPS coordinates for one specific spot, it could be like a cool mountain lake, a place you camped, a, a mountain road pass, a place you've lived, anything like that. Is there any place that comes to mind, a very specific place anywhere on this planet? Ooh, yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting one. Pretty proud of that question. <laughs> um, I would say, uh, let's think here. There's a few places for me, but definitely Mount Waddington stands out as one. Um, it's that's uh, one of BC's biggest mountains up in the coast range. What was uh, the name trip? Mount Waddington. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a long time ago, my buddy Ivan and I hitchhiked up the island, uh, got up to Campbell River, convinced some people to take us on a boat to the end of Butte Inlet. And then from there, we started walking on the, well, basically bushwhacking our way up into the the Butte and Homako Glacier. And uh and then we had our snowboards and we it was basically like summer summertime. And uh yeah, it's just a beautiful big range, big glacier, um just untouched wild country. Really special part of the world. Um yeah. But man, there's so many for me. I uh, it, it's something I'd have to think about for a long time. But that stands out as a as a good one. Okay, cool. And so, looking at the time, I want to kind of end this with a cool story. And I was asking you when I was asking you to do this podcast if you'd have a, a story that you'd want to share that we haven't heard before. Because you know, you Google your name, you hear stories about you fighting off a wolf with a hockey stick and bike pack into Alaska with a trailer and your dog named bear and all like all the, just the most ridiculous Chuck Norris stories that you hear about you. And I wanted to know if there was a story you had that we hadn't heard before. And before you do, cause I, I know you don't want to reveal too much there and you want to keep some of them secret, but uh, there's a story I heard about you that I've never brought you before. And 
I won't tell you who told me this story, but I, I can I tell it to you and you can tell me whether oh, this is true or not? Because I think this has just been embellished a bit. Sure. <laughs> oh, and then going back, so this story was told to me. And then on another trip that I was doing, I went on a, a big, huge bike ride back in BC. And then I, I forget what broke on my bike, but I ended up having to hitchhike my way home. And the dude who picked me up on the side of the road ended up being one of your childhood friends that asked me, you know, do you know Swain? I was like, yeah, of course. And then it what was his name, Graham Bush or something like that. Who, uh, anyways, he, uh, Graham, up. Graham Bush. Yeah. Yeah. So he picked me up funny enough. And then I told him this story and we were both kind of picking it apart. Like, ah, I don't know if that makes sense or, you know, I don't think that's something he would have done. Like, but anyways, here's the story. So, uh, and then this is just how it's told to me. So you can tell me how true this uh-huh. Chuck Norris story is. But so the story goes that one of these winters, you were living up on top of the mountain there. You had set up your whole camp up there. And I guess you had a buddy or something like that that would fly over in a helicopter once in a while and would maybe drop off food or just check in on you at a time. And you're in high school at this time. And your parents know that you're up in the mountains somewhere, but you're just living up in the mountains by yourself. And it's way out in the rural mountains of BC. It's you and your dog up there. And I guess uh, you decided you were going to come, you got bored and decided you were going to come home early from this. And so you just left some of your extra gear that you couldn't haul out at all at once because it taken you a while to get it all up there. So you left some of your gear there and started hiking out with your dog bear. And then I guess this is the, again, this is how the story goes. It's such a rural place that the Canadian military goes and does shelling there with like to practice bombing and whatnot. And they figure <laughs> that they set off an avalanche no. or something like that. And an avalanche partially buried some of your camp. And uh, your buddy flies over in a helicopter, sees your tent and whatnot is partially buried in snow, gets down there. And I guess the coyotes or the wolves or whatnot came to get whatever food that was left over there. And your buddy thinks that you've been buried in an avalanche there. And the footprints are your dog bear looking for you, thinking you're buried underneath all this. He gets back in the helicopter, flies home, goes and tells your parents, Swain is dead. And six hours later, you walk through the front door. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, (laughs) stories get embellished, but there's a lot of truth to this story, actually. Really? Um, Yeah. uh, So I wasn't in high school. I was I was living up on the mountain. I was on one of my my uh, longest stints up in the. It was one of the worst winters. It went like ninety seven, I believe, and it was just snowing like every night. I swear, I was I was shoveling myself out of this pit. I had to create like stairwell. Like basically, I was felt like I was ten meters in a hole, and it just would snow and snow and snow. There's avalanches. And I had a buddy who's going through uh, flight school to become a commercial pilot. So he would fly always he because he helped me uh, get up there and set up my whole my whole camp and everything because it's quite a ways in there. Um, and he like he was my climbing buddy, and uh, so he he knew exactly where I was. So he would fly over and check to see if everything was was cool, you know. Mm-hmm. and and um I, i'd always come out like because he'd he'd go buzzing through this there's like this little gap between the mountains he'd come in super low and kind of be tipping the wings and you know i'd always be able to see him 
And the, there was this period it just been like dumping like five days in a row and just avalanche after avalanche, just rumbling all night long. <clears throat> and uh, and he he uh, came after it had cleared, and I snowboarded down because now it snowed so much. I wanted to go check down below in the tree line, like quite maybe would have been about 400 meters down to the tree line. There's a, there's a creek where I was like loading up big uh, sacks of water. And um, I wanted to go check on that. So I, I go bombing down there and my tracks kind of go, I don't know if you've ever walked across like a recent avalanche area. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's been frozen stiff, you know? You can walk right across like uh, nothing. And um, so, yeah, my my tracks and my dog's tracks go in there into the avalanche. And then um, we I'm strapped there. I go down into the into the forest. And now I'm down there just kind of cruising around because I've been stuck up in the high country for five days, you know. Sure. And so for some reason, uh, Bear, he was he would just stayed up. Like normally he's with me all the time. It was just one of those rare random moments. And I'm way down in the, in the cut line now. Like I've gone quite a ways down in, into the tree line. And of course you hear the plane coming over and I'm like, Oh shit. Cause in my head, I'm starting to picture exactly what he's seen. Yeah. <laughs> Friggin' dog, like standing out in the middle of the, the snow field rain. next to an avalanche and my tracks going into it you know and they're fresh yeah and so he's buzzing by buzzing by and i'm trying to get out of the bloody tree line so he can see me because as soon as i can get onto the snow he'll (laughs) but i'm way down in the woods you know and i have to go straight uphill so you can only go so fast and uh, so he's flying around 15 minutes and then he's probably gotta you know he doesn't have like fuel to just stay around there for the whole day and and uh so he kind of goes back with this, like, he's not sure. And so, yeah, where the story is different in many ways, again, it's, uh, he, he talked to my bro and he said, look, I don't want to cause any, you know, alarm bells, but this is what I saw. I don't know what it means or anything like that, you know? And, and sure enough, I was, I was fine. And my bro came up he came up for it was it's quite a trek in there. It was like, you know, like a couple day and a half to two days commitment when it was a lot of snow. And uh my bro came up and and uh he was just all smiles, you know. Everything's okay. But uh <laughs> it's funny how those stories get like kind of uh there's truth to them, right? But they get like people's versions of what they it's heard. It's just as yeah. crazy, man. <laughs> like we just yeah. rearranged the details a bit, but this is still just as nuts, this story you have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, <laughs> oh, I, look, I look back to those days and, and uh, I, I don't know, I just, I can't imagine, because now I always wonder what the hell is going on in my head, but to be perfectly honest, it's nothing, you know? I remember I once, I was in the back country snowboarding through like a cut cut block and I was just hitting all these sweet stumps, like just these perfect pillowcase jumps. Uh-huh. And I, and I hit one ejected kind of like, you know, out the back where you're like just trying to regain, you know, your, your feet are up in the air. You're, you're, yeah. you're going to eat shit. Yeah. And I nailed another stump right on my back 
Oh. And I remember laying there, it was dumping snow. I'm out in the middle of friggin' nowhere and I'm just staring up at like snowflakes and I can't move. And I'm just like, huh, I wonder if this is it, you know? And I just had such, such a pain in my back and my pelvis. And then like all of a sudden, yeah, everything came back online and, and I was okay. But it's crazy, you know, like, still didn't make me go like, Oh, I shouldn't be doing this, you know, or whatever. I was just like, Oh, that sucked. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> That's really funny. That, and so just hearing you say that story, I have like a similar one, like going back to my mentality of wanting to push it super hard and being in BC, like I'd go ride the bike all day and then I'd go sneak on it. I came up with my whole system of how I'd sneak onto the cross country ski trails at night. And you know, it was, it, it started because I was going to university at first. And then I was going to class during the day. And so I just go sneak onto the cross country ski trails and ski through the night when they were closed and stuff. And then yeah. so like that was one reason. And then there was another reason I couldn't afford to buy a pass. And I just, I made a promise to myself. I couldn't afford their tickets there, but I made a promise to myself. It's like, I'm going to do this. And then one day when I have some money, I'll make an anonymous donation that'll cover a couple seasons passes for this. <laughs> and uh, then when I stopped going to university, it turned in, okay, I'm going to ride my bike all day and then ski all night. Like these are just the dream days I had. But um, I remember I came up with the idea that I wanted to try to ski a hundred kilometers in a day because I was just like I taught myself how to cross-country ski I didn't I never had a lesson I never learned anything but I just remember riding a road bike 30 kilometers in a day when I first got on a road bike that was like such a cool barrier to break through and I was like I wonder if I could ski 100 kilometers and uh, so I went and did that through the night one night but like my equipment that I had was just absolute garbage like I was literally using hockey tape to tape my boots together into the skis and whatnot and uh yeah. So like just try and, but like absolute time in my life, loved it. Like, but then the next day I couldn't even get my feet into my cycling shoes because they were so swollen and lacerated and stuff. And I was telling you about this adventure and then you ended up giving me some of your old cross country ski gear, which is amazing. I, I love that stuff. I still use it. And thank you very much for that stuff. But, uh, man, like, it's just really funny hearing your stories. I'm like, man, that's, that's kind of cool. I have like similar ones that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Anyways, I guess that's probably a good place to to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time and all the stories. And man, this has been fun. I'm really glad to do this. Yeah, no, it's good. Happy to do it, man. Cool. All right. Well, thanks again for the podcast, buddy. I'll cut it here, I guess. Okay. Thanks, bud. Thanks. Okay, we're not done yet. Remember, I still had some questions that I forgot to ask Swain during the podcast. And so I sent him this quick uh, next voice file, just asking him these two other questions and this little theory I have going on. This is usually how Swain and I have gone back for the last couple of years is I'll send him questions via these voice files and I'll be asking him the most ridiculous things. And I'm sure sometimes they're good questions that he enjoys asking, and a lot of times he's probably thinking, oh, geez, what the hell is this guy going off on now? But, uh, you know, it's if you think about, like, how Ferris Bueller explained it, if you have keys to a Ferrari, are you going to say no, or are you going to take advantage of it? If you have access to, uh, if I have Swain's phone number and I can ask him questions, I'll probably keep asking him crazy questions like this until one day he changes his phone numbers, and then I got to go track him down in the mountains someday. But uh, here's some of the maddening questions I asked him, and uh, hopefully you get a kick out of these. 
Hey, buddy. There's so much more content we could have talked about in the podcast, but there's two questions or opinions, thoughts I have that I really, I can't believe I forgot to ask you on. So I'd love to just hear your opinion on these things. If uh, you have a moment just to give it a think over and send me something back. The first is, uh, we've actually had, uh, or I've had, I've gotten massages from, or we've both gotten massages from plenty of different soigneurs over the years. And there's been a couple that have, uh, through mostly through cycling Canada, they've been hired by them that have massaged my legs and also done yours. And something that, uh, that's, that sounds really dirty. I'm sorry, but, <laughs> um, something the physios always comment on whenever I, uh, get on the table is that my muscles feel really, they always say it's like your muscles feel really soupy and soft and like a baby's and I'm thinking like, well, okay, that, and they're usually telling you that right before a race. And it, you know, I'm thinking like, man, that doesn't sound good. Like that, what are you saying? Do my muscles not feel good or anything like that? And they just say, no, no, no. It's just everyone's muscles feel different. Yours feel very soft and supple and they're very easy to massage that way. I always thought that was really strange. And then there were set, there were two, if not three different masseuses that said this from Cycling Canada. And all three of them, without me ever mentioning your name, without your name ever coming up, they all said, the only other person I've uh, massaged that has muscles that feel like this are Swain. And the first time I heard that, I was like, okay, I guess, so maybe it's not a bad thing, I guess. (laughs) But then when they started saying it more and more, I was thinking like, okay, what, uh, I have this theory. And my theory, and you, you can tell me, I want to know if you think this is just complete nonsense or not, but... So I think everybody has different genetics and that's, or they've always explained it to me, everyone has different genetics and that's why some people's muscles feel different. But my theory on this is because we both, the reason our muscles feel that way is because we do so many other different sports. And the example I can think of is every cyclist who's ever been like trail running or hiking will know you can go crush everybody going up the mountain because that concentric muscle tension going up the mountain is just what you're doing on the bike and you can go and you have the lungs and your muscles are working that way you can crush everybody going up the mountain but when it comes down to go running downhill or hiking down the mountain at the end of the day you're like an old man and your muscle the next day your muscles are so sore and just absolutely destroyed after doing that because you're never used to that eccentric loading so it you're like the, you might as well be in a wheelchair the next day. Your muscles are so much more sore than anybody else because we're so used to only firing our muscles one way. And I feel this at the end of every season when I've been on the bike nonstop and then going into uh, the off season, I start doing this stuff. And for the first couple weeks or the first week, I'm just absolutely so sore from doing this, but then my muscles get used to it. And my theory is because you and I probably do this stuff more than other people do with cross training and doing all these other things. It Something happens, it beats up the muscles and they become more supple to going into those different activities. I don't know, maybe that's nonsense. Maybe uh, I'm just off on some weird tangent here. But you know, that's just a question I wanted to ask you about because that's not something you can like Google in some physiology textbook, but that's just my theory. So let me know what you think about that. The second thing is I know this is something people are going to think that's super weird and wild, but we're kind of talking about biohacking 
And I don't know if you got me into doing this or I figured this out based on stuff you told me. But um, one thing I do as far as like, uh, like biohacking tips I can recommend to people, and you got me started on the whole light cycles thing, is what I'll do is it's more difficult when you're living with other people because other people usually aren't into this. But when if you can get the other people into it or uh, you're living by yourself is when the sun goes down, a trick I love to do is I use my headlamp in the house, like just a normal, like a Petzl headlamp. And then whether it has like the little red light for reading or even just the normal light and I turn off the lights in my house and I help, I find that's such a good tip to like getting you to sleep better and stuff. Once the sun goes down, you don't have all these bright lights in your house going off and just, and whatever you're doing when you're winding down for the end of the day, headlamp is usually more than enough to see what you're doing and whatnot. It's a little bit strange at first when the, to be walking around your house with a headlamp, but I find that helps me get to bed so much easier compared to just having the normal house lights on. I don't know if this sounds like complete nonsense, or craziness or what you think, but I just wanted to hear your opinion on these things because I figured you'd be the one person in the world I could say these things to and maybe he'd consider it without just completely writing it off. So I'm curious to hear what you have to say, buddy. Hey, bud. <clears throat> yeah, two uh, interesting questions. Um, can't say I know the scientific reason for the first one, but my... I don't know. I, I do I do think there's a bit of truth to to your theory, but I think probably the problem with it is it, it still holds true while you've only been racing for for months. I know for me it was the same during Grand Tours. And I really think it's just more of a nervous system thing. Some people are just more relaxed and they don't have a tense nervous system because basically that tension comes from like the the myelin sheath which is like your nervous system and it keeps muscles tense or relaxed and uh, I just think the more relaxed you are a lot of the times it's, it's just going to be better for recovery so if you can tap into parasympathetic uh, uh, recovery then you're you're generally doing way better than someone who's just pinned and, and their all of their uh, blood is rushing to their to their limbs all the time and they're never actually getting to digest their food and and yeah just kind of in a stressed out scenario and I think probably again it's really hard to you know to run experiments on that kind of stuff or <laughs> do any testing but I reckon those people are more stressed and probably less have less ability to recover and I think back to when I was younger more so than it is now but like my ability to recover was just that was, I think, maybe the one thing that got me through a lot of stuff was um, just that good recovery. And um, so, yeah, I I think for sure, like, I noticed uh, the same thing. I always had people say that, oh, and, and like you, I was always like, oh, oh, geez, am I just a fat guy or, or what? But, yeah, the reality is the more relaxed the muscle is, yeah, it's just, a, I think it's a better case scenario. And some people are just rigid you know and you see that how they carry themselves they're very very rigid so i think probably one of the keys and i'm not saying like that's going to make you a great sports person or anything but to just be relaxed when you're in your downtime i mean massage should be the most relaxing thing you'll you'll do in your life um and a great time to just really chill out
So going to your second question, yeah. Uh, maybe it's something we discussed or maybe it's something you you, you figured out on your own. But, um, you know, we've been doing that. I've been wearing blue blockers since 2011. And, uh, you know, we started that pattern of living here, like, as soon as we moved up to Andorra, pretty much, away from uh, kind of apartment living and all that stuff. Um, in our house, we have some infrared lights. And uh, essentially, as soon as the sun's going down, we, we shut everything off and we keep the infrared lights, look at screens or whatever. Uh, we, we do candles quite a bit. And... I'm a big fan of the Petzl headlamp. Been wearing wearing them suckers for years, and I think the the little red lamp function is is super important. Um, our boy was born in that um, that whole environment. We never, you know, when we changed diapers at nighttime, it was just with the Petzl red headlamp. So I think like if you want to disturb like a young kid's light cycles, you come in at the middle of the night, turn on some crazy high lumen light and totally blast their pineal gland and and bugger up their melatonin production so that comes later in life because i don't think babies actually have any circadian rhythm to start with but um anyways i i think that's you know i didn't want to go too deep in it when we were talking because there's just another whole can of worms and i could go on and on about that stuff but um stuff like that is obviously it's hard to convince others like because they just think you're nuts um but i i remember being back in the classics and i kind of got my friend luke derbridge on board you know he probably thought i was totally nuts but you know that's you can't be worried about being like whatever you know like what people think of you so um yeah we would run candles because you know we'd be staying in these uh, hotels that just have these crazy lights that just I find absolutely annoying after the sun's gone down and yeah I just think anytime you can you can keep it more natural more natural lighting the the better and I know they have all this fancy technology hooked up to your Wi-Fi dims and all that stuff I just think that's a whole other mess to get yourself into of basically more EMF more I don't I'm not sure how much they've dialed in like I'm sure they do the Lumens right, but the shades. I think it's still using like that um, the uh, LED lighting, or it's it's uh, the uh, what am I trying to say here? The uh, <laughs> in the offices, the fluorescent lighting. Um, but the LED stuff has is an issue because it's uh, it's got a flicker effect, and it's flickering at like thousands of revolutions per. That's the Hertz, I believe. It's like just blinking off and on, like uh, whatever the the number is written on the side of the light. That's how many times a second, I believe. I could be talking absolute shit here, but your brain gets quite uh, bothered by this, and and it's just like another stimulating thing that you you don't need in your life. So candlelight, um, and even like even these headlamps, when you look at them. It's a problem because they're using LEDs a lot of times, and, and it's it's cool to have it pointed outwards using the red the red lamp, um, and that's just something we've noticed over time. And and it's funny because at first you're kind of like, oh, you're just experimenting with it, but then all of a sudden it just becomes crucial. Like I wouldn't, I I can't really do it any other way now, you know, because that's all we do. So 
Anyways, bud, hope that helps. Take care. So much madness in this pat in this podcast. You got to excuse uh, some of the rambling that I've done in there, and just wanting to ask him more questions and some of the ridiculous stuff. But uh, I hope you enjoyed some of those stories. Swaino deserves a lot of credit for how much he's given to his teammates and to young athletes coming up. And uh, he's escaped a lot of the cycling journal journalists by retiring from the sport and. Now he's living up in Andorra, hiding away and starting his own bike touring company. He's got a book coming out, but he still has to deal with guys like me pestering him for stories and asking him for advice. And I don't think he'll ever get away from that, unfortunately. But I hope you enjoyed this episode. Again, if you enjoyed listening to this one, two podcasts, I, I mean, there's all kinds of articles I could recommend. But if you want two more good podcasts on Swain, I'd highly recommend looking up the ones that Mitch Docker did. The first one is Swaino's Journey on the Life in the Peloton podcast, which is now part of the Cycling podcast. And then they did a second one going over the 2014 Giro and that whole story. There's two amazing stories right there, and Swain's obviously featured in both of them. So if you want a little bit more of the Cycling's Chuck Norris, that's a good place to find it. If you enjoyed this episode, yeah, you don't have to give me any ratings, reviews, sharing, anything like that. I just, I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you're having a sweet day outside, whether that's on the bike, hiking, walking your dog, whatever you're up to. I hope you're having a sweet time. If there's, you know, a bud that you want to share this with that you think you'd get a kick out of it, you know, do it for their benefit. It, I enjoy having these conversations, so I'll keep doing them regardless. Um, the podcast is obviously now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all that stuff. So that's pretty cool. And, um, yeah, if you'd like to follow me any more personally, you can always do so at jackburkcycling.com or follow me on Instagram at jackflash66. Okay. Have an awesome day, everybody. Cheers.